What's up? What's up? What's up? That's my new thing. I'm going to start doing. I'm the host that talks first at the Bitcoin podcast. And my name is, is D. Uh, I'm the other host, Dr. Corey Petty. And you can't take that from BitConnect. That's, that's always going to be BitConnect. You're never going to be able to win over the hearts and minds of the people in that phrase, not associating it with BitConnect. I forgot about BitConnect. I was thinking about Martin Lawrence. <laughs> well, I guess BitConnect took it over from Martin Lawrence, so we got something going here. Damn, I forgot all about BitConnect. I guess you can't forget about BitConnect. Um, so, Sidebar, have you yet, I know you've been a doctor for a while, have you yet been in a situation where somebody was dying and they were like, we need a doctor, and you were like, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor? No, but I've joked about that process quite a few times. Okay, it's gonna happen. I know. I believe it. Yeah, I believe prob- it'll it probably will. How was your week, man? First off, this is episode two ninety seven. We're getting real close to three hundred. Uh, we got a couple ideas on what we're gonna do. Hadn't fleshed them out. Should be fun, regardless. Make sure you listen to it. My week. Let's start with your week, because I got a lot to say about my week. I was I was busy in New York. Oh man, I was moving in to. A destination in the U.S. and um, getting unpacked, and yeah, it was a busy week. But um, for the most part, it was pretty chill. It's a nice grocery store next to where I live. I'm, I get really excited about nice grocery stores um, because it just makes life so easy. You can have a good grocery store to go. So it's such a reliable thing. I don't even go to the grocery uh, store anymore. I rarely go to the grocery store because we use like we use Home Chef. And that's not an advertisement. Like you're such a millennial, bro. Well, I just don't like leaving the house. I work from home. I don't need the I don't, I don't need to leave the house. I don't want to leave the house. <laughs> it's just that simple. <laughs> when do you go like see other humans? I don't. Well, I was I was I was I was seeing other humans all last week in New York. And it was like, I, I don't know, maybe when I go do it, I like go see humans too hard. Like I don't go casually see other humans. Okay. <laughs> so well, I, need to, I like, guess they just come lot. to you, huh? No, it's just most of my, most of my, I'd say most of the relationships that I have are, that are strong with people are, are digitally. Okay. Like with you, I don't see you that often, but I talk to you just about every day. That's true. That's true. Well, I mean... Yeah, I guess it's different because we grew up in a time where having like digital friends is a okay, like video game friends, internet friends. So we're able to maintain without having to see each other, which is cool. But well, what well, tell us about uh, you were in New York, right? Yeah, I went to uh, a you few things. You looked up with Ja Rule, didn't you? Ja Rule, maybe. <laughs> can't can't say his name without saying that. Uh, no, I went to the, a few things. So the company I work for status, um, I guess quick announcement on that one. Uh, status is now a sponsor of the network. 
You'll be hearing a lot more about them. Why are they a sponsor? Because I'm the CSO of the company and I pretty much believe in everything we're doing. And you wouldn't be listening to us if you didn't like what I have to say. And I, that's what I'm doing. So that's pretty much what's going to happen. Uh, Congratulations, man. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. This, it's, this uh, is the first time we told the audience. I think. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, I am. I got, I got promoted. I've been working with Status for a little over a year and a half. I was promoted to the chief security officer. And um, just to try and make sure that I keep an eye on things and, and, and try and make things that don't break and make sure the things that we do make don't break. And that the users who use the applications and programs and stuff we use um, are safe and have the, the same kind of self-custody control and ideology of like original Ethereum and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and stuff. So to make sure we don't, we don't compromise any of that type of stuff. That's, that's the whole goal there. But like, you'll, you'll, you'll be hearing a lot more about status over the years and a little bit more later about why I happen to be in New York. Uh, most of the marketing team is on the, is on the, is in the United States. And there's like, that's about it in terms of like United States employees other than me and, and one of our smart contract developers in the United States, everyone else is kind of dispersed across the globe. Mm. And, uh, do you, go ahead. Are you going to wear, uh, like a police uniform in your video conference calls? Yeah. I'm not like as a gun. The chief security officer. Like I have a badge. <laughs> you can twirl a baton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You can't come in. <laughs> I would have so much fun with that position. Oh, it'd be stupid. Yeah, I feel like over the but years, anyways. my uh, my ability to have fun has has, has slowly dwindled. <laughs> it's way too serious. Uh, yeah, it is. Like, yeah, we, but uh, you and me both, man. I know, right? Like, it's, it's cool. Listen to that. Or like, for those who are relatively new to this podcast or this network, and you're maybe just listening to us for the first time, um, go listen to some of the early episodes and like. That'll give you a sense of like how much we clowned around and how un <laughs> unserious we were about everything. And then like over the, the years, the whatever, how many years we've been doing this, five, six, whatever years, uh, it's just slowly turned into like, I'm way more serious. Cello over the years got way more like contrarian. <laughs> Cynic, cynical. cynical. Yeah, cynical is a good word. I don't goof off as much. You don't say like uh, you don't you don't like alienate some part of the world every single episode, <laughs> or say something racist or sexist or something that's going to offend somebody. Yeah, I was a huge huge offender. Uh, Equal opportunity offender. offender. That's right, but um, nevertheless, so Corey was in uh, Corey was in New York and he was at a conference in New York, um, and. It was about NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens. So I guess that was the like main reason, or like what the like yeah. the initial reason is on why we all came into New York. Our our head of marketing lives in New York, and so everyone that was close, we decided to just have like a meetup and take care of a bunch of a stuff that we could while attending this conference. Uh, so and we and we had like a official, unofficial kind of sticker market launch, which is one of our applications and status. And I'll tell you about. Uh, I'll fuck. I'll do that now. Uh, so we, we're doing, we'll talk about sticker markets. I'll tell you about the launch party we had first. We went through, I think it was the day, the night before the conference or the, or the, the, the night, two nights before the conference. I forget which one. Uh, we had an event. We decided to like throw a little party because we have this, this new feature that we're launching and, and pushing forward and trying to expand. Um, that's an app. That's like a, a feature slash decentralized application outside of status called the sticker market. And so uh, status is like a mobile communications thing. So if you think about using Telegram, WhatsApp, uh, Signal, that type of stuff, all these things have stickers, right? Uh, so we we wanted to, we wanted stickers, but we wanted to do it in a cryptocurrency way. I'll talk more about that later. Uh, but like, hey, let's have a party for the launch. Like one of our, of our marketing guys. And like, so we got on VipRite. Uh, uh, the head of marketing has like this cool office space in, 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 uh, in New York. So like, we'll just have it here. It'll be really easy. 75 people tops should be, should be fun. Right. Uh, like it sold out immediately on Eventbrite. Opened up a thing on Eventbrite 30 minutes later, sold out. All the tickets are gone. And I'm looking at like who all registered and it's like, you know, so on and so forth at some company, uh, got 10 tickets because the tickets were free. We just wanted people to show up so we could get a good idea of the head count. Uh, because we would like, you know, screw up fire marshals or, you know, so on and so forth and figure out how much booze we need to buy. 
and, and then so like you go and buy a bunch of beer, fill a fridge full of beer, so on and so forth, get ready for this party. Uh, have like a drawing for SNC and stuff like that. Maybe 10 people show up. I forgot that during blockchain parties or blockchain weeks when conferences are happening, people show up and just get tickets to everything. So they have, so they know what's going on and they can get in and decide later on whether or not they're going to go. And so we have a ton of alcohol and like 10 people show up. Shout out to Colin and Yemen Gunsarir and the Ava folks. Uh, they showed up, hung out for a while. Uh, and we just hung out. We just hung out and drank for a while amongst amongst ourselves and then went to bed. And so for like the whole week, we just had a fridge full of beer to uh, keep ourselves fueled for all this crazy marketing discussion we had to go through. Mm. And so that's like the start of this stuff. And then we do a bunch of uh, status marketing planning and you know, K, you know KPIs and all the, all the good stuff you need to do for, for planning, uh, how to push products out, whatever. And we, then we went to the, the NFC conference, which is a non-fungible token conference in New York to talk about um, all of the use cases and um, products that are pushing NFTs, which in my, which I didn't realize um, at, is, a lot. Big, is a lot. It's huge. Like uh, professional sports are getting into this, like NFL, uh, ML, MLB. They're they're officially making NFTs as like trading cards and stuff, and like, yeah, people are people are tokenizing themselves. Like Cristiano Ronaldo is doing something with NFTs. Um, it was I was I was pretty amazed at the level of interest from. Mm-hmm. But it, you think about that, right? It's kind of like merchandising in a lot of ways. It is exactly is man, and well, at least at least to marketing folks, it's like, hey, how can we like make things that people want that's scarce and you know gives them gives them the ability to show off what they've done and who they have and trade and make money potentially based on like the value of these nfts and uh so on and so forth one one interesting thing that i found through the legal panel of this of this conference was um most of the current implementations and use cases of nfts fall outside this jurisdiction of uh securities so that was an interesting discovery that I found, like this, this whole market doesn't seem like it's a securities issue in a lot of ways. That's closer to like memorabilia. It's not, it's a, it's, it's a product, man. And, yeah. and it really can be powerful depending upon the, I don't know, I'd say the savvy of the marketers involved, man, because I used to collect cards. I collected X-Men cards and I collected baseball and football cards and all that stuff is useless like it literally is but But it it was cool exactly the bragging rights of like oh this was in lot 10 of 100 and there's only this many of these or you know this was a limited edition marvel ultra painted cards like this this was like there's not a lot of people that have these and there that's the cool thing about nfts and and there's what the the thing about it is like it makes it a perfect thing if you can, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure kids back in the 60s, 50s, whatever, 40s, maybe even before that, were just collecting paper, and their parents were probably like, why the fuck do you care so much about this little two-inch by three-inch piece of paper? And the crazier that seems, the probably better the idea. And so, like, Crypto Kitties, when I was telling people about Crypto Kitties, and they were like, why the fuck would anyone want a cartoon kitten that makes it a great idea (laughs) like it's like that's that's all you need is something that's just completely fucking ridiculous well it's also proven it's it's like it's provably scarce 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 you know that if you have one of three it is one of three and no one can stop that yep and that's a that's a big part of that type of stuff and you can track ownership and track the market and so on and so there's so many things you can do to make it easier to um prove that you have something that is provably scarce and mm-hmm. potentially find others who find that valuable as opposed to like your local market uh doesn't necessarily care if you have this one of three UGO card that no one else cares about yeah what about the sneaker game what if you oh basically yeah dude I, that was a big part of that like brand like branding oh, wow. around um like sneakers and that like nike and, and apparel and all that type of stuff they're in it to win it, dude. 
<laughs> like it's it's, it's going to be. I think a lot. I mean, of course, and when you go to any conference, especially one branded as a, something like this, uh, it's like this is the next big thing in in the blockchain space. Is NFTs and how we use these things to, uh, you know, show uh, allegiance or participation or so on and so forth. Uh, and so, like, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. We'll see if that's the case. Um, I'm going to follow it for a few reasons. Uh, but like, that's not the, like the games that are coming out or look yeah. look pretty sick, at least based on the marketing material they show at NFT conferences. Uh, I'm interested in that because I've always played games and wanted to uh, like have real world value and the amount of effort and time that I put into these games. Like I've, I've played a lot of things where you have to grind. You're like, all right, I just spent a good portion of my life playing this game to get to this point where I'm really good at and like I'm better than everyone else and I have nothing physical to show for it. I'm a loser. I'm going to walk away now. Being able to extract that value and do something with it, I think is yeah. useful for a lot of for a lot of people, especially when you see like how big esports is getting. Wait, you mean you don't go to the bar and brag about how sick you are at Call of Duty? Nope. Maybe I did. What? Maybe I did in college. I take that back. <laughs> we'll see. Damn it! Now I know where I'm going wrong. Nobody gives a shit about my KD ratio. I got to stop talking <laughs> about that shit. Provably secure KD. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, wait, one thing we haven't done, and I'm pretty sure at least 20 times we've explained this throughout the duration of the network, but an NFT is a non-fungible token. And what that means is it's pretty simple. Uh, dollars are fungible because if I have five $1 bills in my hand, they all equal $1, right? Cool. Does it matter which? Does it matter which five, one five dollar bills you have? They're all the same. They all look the exact yes, same, and all exactly. operate the exact same. They're interchangeable, but, which makes them fungible. But if something is non fungible, one of my dollars would be worth maybe ten dollars, and the other dollar bill would be worth like three. Essentially, different tokens or different units have different value. And but they kind of look the same. It's a unique right? so physical asset. So trading cards. I think about maybe um, admission tickets to events. Uh, uh, any 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 type of collectible. Um, a tracking a physical asset in a digital way. So like uh, some 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 digital representation of a physical asset. Tracking that. So on and so forth. That's yep. it's like it's, and- it's it's unique. That's the main thing about it. It's not you can't trade it for something else that's exactly like it. Yep, and I think the coolest idea, um, which is yet to be executed, would be like some sort of unique weapon in a video game that has a traceable history of awesomeness that, you know, instead of them just spitting out this thing being super awesome and valuable, it's been grinded to the point where it's changed hands so many times and blah, 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 that you can see like, yes, my sword of a thousand truths. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> is is actually worth a thousand truths, but um, yeah. So I, I think it's exciting. You had a podcasting NFT you wanted to talk about. Yeah. So like that's, we do that after. I was, no, I was gonna go to that. Um, I'll go for it. Swing into. Yeah. It. So like one of the shows that I wanted to see because it's it obviously intersects all the things that I do. Uh, was done by the guys from the Bad Crypto Podcast. Uh, Joel and Travis. Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of their characters on that show, but uh, they're both incredibly smart individuals in terms of the business of podcasting. They understand marketing. They understand podcasting. They don't understand how to make a good show and get it to people and, 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 do, all, and do all the stuff involved of making a podcast. They're professionals at that, in my opinion. Probably the, the biggest professionals in the cryptocurrency podcasting space. Okay, I can agree. I, I, I just, I just, I don't listen to the show, uh, and so they had a show called NFTs and podcasting. Like, and part of the reason why I do, uh, why I've always done this podcast network is to um, make a community and interact with that community who are as who are like minded and care about the things that I care about, right? And then have like a community of people who get to come together and talk about the things that we all collectively care about and feel and have, you know, good discourse and so on and so forth, and then provide content for them. Um, like yep. to, and a brand have, of Kool-Aid. I, yeah. Like I have access to these people. I get to ask them questions that I, I think that I care about 
And then I just share that with them because if they're listening to me, they should also probably care about those things too. And if they don't, they have a direct line to talk to me about it. So that, that community building is really cool, but tracking, there's, there's, there's problems in the podcast industry that we've become aware of. And that is, who are your true listeners? Um, how do they provably show that uh, they are your listeners, they care about your content, and like, and then how do you reward those people that have been with you for a long period of time? Like, there's things that have come up in terms of like Patreon and stuff like that, and like you know, tiered access for various types of levels of Patreon things, and so on and so forth. And it didn't quite jive with how I wanted to build stuff in terms of interacting with my community. I, like, I want to be able to have episodes that are built and created from like feedback and work of the of the community members and then reward them for commensurate with the amount of work they put into it like that idea is really cool to me and so with the bad the bad uh crypto podcast guys discussed was this concept of using nfts to do this and what they're doing mm -hmm. what they've built and what they've done or, and what they're what they're doing now is basically at some point in any of their episodes they they give a specific URL that's unique for 72 hours after the publishing of that show where the listeners, when they listen, go there and scan a QR code and get an, an, a non-fungible token of that specific episode, right? Uh, which is a, which they call the proof of listening token. Because in order <clears throat> to get this thing, you have to listen to the episode. There's no other way to get it. This is similar to like, I'd say like how... Let's talk Bitcoin used to do like the keywords in individual episodes. So they get to get like the LTB coin, but like mm -hmm. the ERC 20, the fungible version of this ended up being gamed and scammed and stuff like that to like get people a lot of profits for shit that they didn't actually participate in. This is simple. There's not necessarily value. It's something you can exchange with this. It's just a way to show that you listen to an episode and you get a digital token associated with that that like real-time event and then you can build stuff from this like say for instance like uh you're a listener and you've listened to like you've you've shown you have you have 20 nfts we can we have a way to be able to understand who our listeners are how many podcasts they have how many podcasts they listen to provably and then reward them for stuff like that or like say um all of the people who got the nft of a specific episode with a specific guest that that guest can say, hey, I'd like to reach out to those people and give them give them some tokens just for listening. I want to thank them. We can say, okay, here, here you go. You can do that. Uh, we can have eventually like tiered access to channels of communication where like the the real OGs. You've listened to over a hundred episodes, provably. You you get to, you get access to this channel now, and you can you can start to talk. Right? There's so many things you can do with having people say. They've listened to an episode provably. And then they want they might want to do this stuff too. Like, hey, did you listen to an episode? Yeah, here's the token. I can prove it. Or like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. A lot of stuff that you can do uh, with that. And it also gives us a really good idea of like um, understanding like how far into a podcast are people listening? Are they listening to the whole thing? They they turning off at 30 minutes? We can we can play with that. And then we can make content that makes sure that like we're keeping the audience engaged. There's a lot of stuff, cool stuff you can do with this. And so uh, we're going to start trying to work on this and make sure that we can do this. So those who are listening to this can start to say like, hey guys, I'm, I'm a crypto OG. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Bitcoin podcast OG and here's how I prove it. And, mm -hmm. and, and we can start rewarding you for the time that you're spending with us in various ways because that's, that's really how we want to do it. We want to use the technology that we're proselytizing uh, to, to everyone for so many years to do that instead of saying like, hey guys, we love crypto, but we're not using it. You know, like- but Imagine how this extends into the physical business world too. But sorry, I don't want to go on. I just have no. Like that's ideas. that's my that's my pitch and what I got excited about when I saw this. And I talk with these guys, and there's that we're gonna have conversations moving forward on like how to make this easy for people to do and use it. You know what I think we should do? Quite honestly, we should we should do like a three part series with them where we're explaining our process of implementing it, and then just air that. You know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll play with that. Um, Anyways. Yeah, I guess the last uh, thing I wanted to talk about. Up. Yeah, last thing I wanted to talk about was like um, like someone's expressed interest. And I've, I've, I've noticed there's a little bit of a, 
misunderstanding in, in the status sticker market, like what we went to this conference for. Because uh, we do it in somewhat of a different way than most people think about non-fungible tokens. Um, so the stickers, the sticker market is a market of stickers, obviously. And what stickers are, are ways to like download different packs of cartoon-like things with different emo like emojis and emoticons that you post inside chat, right? The thumbs up guy or like, you know, think about the, the, the bitmoji that everyone uses inside Snapchat, that type of stuff. These are relatively, these are stickers, gifts, mm -hmm. how you respond to things, so on and so forth, which makes the experience of um, chat chat applications way more fun and expressive. Uh, and also there's branding and all that stuff too. But what we've done is created what's called the, uh, the sticker market, which is a way for anyone to create a sticker pack uh, themselves and submit it to an open network and make money off it, potentially make money off it because they sell it for a price. So you make a you make a group of stickers, you put it on a market with a price, you set your address, you set a percentage of a donation if you'd like to do that. So like anytime someone buys your sticker pack, a percentage of that can go to something else or or the or the sticker market itself so that we can keep funding it and building it. And then it's available inside the application. And so that means you in the, in the app, if you would like to download sticker pack, you open it up, you can see what stickers are available, buy the ones you want, and that money goes directly to the creator who, who submitted it. No middlemen involved, all smart contracts. Uh, some of those can be scarce. So like artists can make incredibly scarce sticker packs. So you're like, you can provably show that like, hey, I bought this one and I, I'm one of so many people that have this particular sticker pack. And then you could potentially sell that. The ownership of a pack is an NFT that's tied to your account. Right. And so you can trade that if you don't want it anymore, or if you think it's more valuable than something like that. And that's all on any market you want. You don't have to go through anything. That's just that's just an asset in your wallet, in your in your Ethereum wallet and status. Uh, and also there's another NFT registry associated with this, and that is the ownership of the creator of the pack. So the people who submit it, the people who are receiving the the funds of others buying their packs is also an NFT. And so say a creator has a very successful pack, they can then monetize the proceeds of that thing and sell it to someone else too. So there's two markets here. One is the stickers themselves, depending on their scarcity. Another one is the ownership of the sticker pack. Mm -hmm. And so like there's this, it's kind of a fun way to make an open market of people to create content, make it easily discoverable by others and potentially make money just by like adding fun features into a chat application and that's that's what we launched and that's it's it's pretty neat you know what's pretty interesting is that um you guys aren't the first to offer something like this which i think you might be the first to find a way for people to monetize it like uh because facebook messenger kind of started they had stickers right and then you could build a sticker back if you were working in their facebook messenger dev portal you could submit a sticker pack and if they approved it it became an official, a sticker pack in facebook messenger but people did that for free they were just like yeah i want to fucking do this so they did all that for free but in but you what you guys are saying is like you can make a sticker pack and then actually make money from it if people potentially if people choose to. i'm not going to say you are going because, to because you know some sticker packs suck some are good yeah having people understand that like the discovering process of finding like the curation mm -hmm. of finding sticker packs is going to be like, if this blows up, it's going to be hard to find sticker packs. So there's more problems to solve, but yeah, I think it's, it's definitely the first like open market that no one controls. Like right now, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a disclaimer here. The, these contracts are under a controlled state. The only people that can, that can add sticker packs right now are, is, is this that is, is status. That's because we wanted to test it, make sure it works properly, so on and so forth, before we, before we turn the contract to, quote unquote, open, and then anyone can do this. And we don't have control over that type of stuff. Hmm. Okay. Dope. Well, we we should cut to the interview because like, yeah. we got a long... Very different con con uh, conversation in the interview. But uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's start cutting to it. No doubt. So we interviewed a gentleman named Tushar. Uh, he works for Persistence. Uh, he's the CEO, not works for. He's the CEO of Persistence, and uh, what they're aiming to do, um, 
is, I mean, pretty much like grow Cosmos awareness, but it's, it's a lot more intricate than that. And we didn't, I mean, I feel like I'm bastardizing what persistence is trying to do. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say, um, finding a good use case or, or implementation of enterprise adoption using Cosmos. Okay. I can go with that. It. We'll go with that. They've got to be, there's no way in hell that's not one of the most competitive areas in crypto right now. Because if you win the interoperability game, you win. Like there's so many people that are going to have to own your token in order to get access to value and other networks. So, yeah. But anyways, that's just me thinking out loud. Um, here it is. Hey guys, welcome to another interview on the Bitcoin podcast. I'm Dr. Corey Petty. Got Dimitrik here with me, calling from his phone because he doesn't quite have an internet connection yet. And today's interview, we're going to talk with Tushar Garwal, CEO of Persistence. Uh, we're going to learn all about that, what it does, why it's here, what it's trying to do. Um, Tushar, why don't you why don't you give us that that normal introduction as to kind of who you are, how you got in the space, and we'll start talking about uh, Persistence. Well, first of all, guys, thanks for having me on the show. Um, a quick introduction. So uh, pr just prior to persistence in my most recent role, I helped to set up Southeast Asia's first uh, properly structured regulated crypto fund, crypto venture capital fund called Lunex Ventures, which was the crypto arm of a traditional VC fund called Golden Gate. Uh, Golden Gate's been investing in Southeast Asian startups for almost close to a decade. And they've done an equity investment into a company called Omise, if you remember, yep, um, of the Omise Go token. Uh, the fund could not take part in the token round of the Omise Go token sale uh, because the fund mandate didn't allow it to invest in tokens. Um, and that's how this kind of dedicated crypto fund called Lunex was born. Uh, so I was involved in you know, doing multiple things at the fund, setting up the fund, working with lawyers, tax advisors, auditors fund administrators, the local regulator, which was Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, was involved in fundraising and then doing deals, both in the primary markets, so equity and tokens, uh, as well as managing a liquid portfolio of about eight to 12 tokens. You know, I've seen, uh, you know, so many deals over the last kind of three, three and a half years, invested in a bunch of stuff, made money, lost money. Um, but, you know, truly for me, it was more about the ecosystem play. And, you know, lately, um, you know, especially in the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, gaming, gambling, DeFi are things that have captured the imagination of investors, of entrepreneurs, of developers, of community members. But my thesis has been that, you know, if we truly have to move to the trillions of dollars, then, um, you know, a big part of that is going to be through the institutional or the enterprise use case. And so that's what I'm trying to build right now. So persistence is essentially trying to bring enterprise use cases into interoperable networks like Cosmos um, with a high-level thesis of, you know, so, so far today, all enterprise applications live on platforms like Hyperledger, Quora, Quorum. Um, and, you know, these are completely closed, permissioned, um, but... Our thesis is that over a period of time, similar to the transition from the internet, intranet to the internet, and from the transition of having on-premises servers to the cloud, there's going to be a movement from uh, kind of private platforms to relatively more open, relatively more decentralized, and relatively more permissionless networks. So that's the kind of high-level thesis of how uh, persistence came about. Okay. I got a, I got because you do us a favor so some of some of our audiences they're like beginners and things and maybe they can't differentiate between an individual user's use case and an enterprise use case so what would be an example of an enterprise use case that could be going on on like a private blockchain like quora or hyperledger 
and, and why they're choosing to do it there and not launching it on Ethereum. Sure. So um, some of the use cases. Uh, so first of all, um, I'll answer your second question first. So why are people choosing to do it, do it on Hyperledger or Quorum or uh, quote unquote private implementations of Ethereum? Um, so very straightforward reasons. Enterprises love privacy. They don't want to expose their transactions to the public. They don't want to expose the application logic, the business logic to the public. And with most public networks, you're actually exposing all of those things. Uh, in terms of your first question, in terms of what are some of the use cases, so the use cases that we have been tackling have been uh, mostly around the exchange of real-world assets and fiat money. So um, use cases like uh, trading of physical commodities, uh, trading of solar credits, uh, trading of you know social impact bonds, bonds in general, stocks. And essentially what where the blockchain element comes in is trying to create a layer of transparency for the different parties that are involved. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you seeing use cases um, in the enterprise space? I mean, I, before I worked for the current company, I had, I guess I did a few stints in um, government contracting agencies and consulting agencies. And a lot of that was building POCs, like going through that, that, that rapid uh, prototyping schedule of here's a use case, pitch it, write a POC, uh, pitch it, never hear from it again. And I think that was like the, over the last maybe three years, I'd say that's been a lot of it. And I'd never saw any of those things really take off despite seeing a lot of interest in, in the enterprise space. And, and, and a lot of that was because it's hard to capture value in a private network uh, because the validators aren't uh, beholden to any real thing. It's very difficult to hold. It's in a private network. So I guess you only have value within that small, within those small players who also have a lot of control. So a lot of the, I guess, benefits of using distributed consensus and stuff don't work out over traditional databases. Are you seeing things outside of value creation being wanted in enterprise? And, and, and what would that be? So uh, you brought up three extremely, extremely good points and you kind of hit the nail on the head um, on these three points. And, and these are some of the things that, you know, I've been talking to a lot of kind of, uh, you know, I'm an SF right now. I've been talking to a lot of North American kind of crypto blockchain uh, community folks and ecosystem players. And, and these are some of the things that, I, you know, I've been trying to explain to a lot of the folks here as well. So the first point that you brought up is a private network in terms of the validators or the nodes. Um, essentially, you know, the business case for a private network is, is very weak. Now, as a business case, opportunities to increase revenue for a company or to decrease expenses. That is the only reason why a company would adopt a new technology if it adds some value to them. Um, and like you rightly pointed out, you know, the thing with private networks is um, the company itself or a couple of companies um, control all the validators or all the nodes. And so in case something goes wrong, they can actually roll back the blockchain or roll back the transactions. And so that beats the point of having a blockchain. You might as well have a database. And that is the problem that at some level we are trying to solve where we try to have kind of relatively private or you know consortium chains. But these chains are secured by a distributed set of validators um, and Validators like the ones we're used to hearing about, like Certus One, like Figment, like Stake.fish, uh, Bee Harvest in Asia. So that's the first point. The second point uh, that you talked about is more on along the uh, point of, you know, a lot of enterprises doing POCs but not going into full-scale implementation. And and that's where Asia is unique as well. And and in terms of that, what our strategy has been. You know, unlike North America, where a lot of the, and, and you know, for the listeners, I'm based out of a combination of Singapore and India. Um, and geographically, our target market is Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, the Middle East, and South Asia. So um, in terms of, you know, moving beyond POCs, so first of all, there's a stigma attached around POCs. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you look at, um, the movement from having 
on-premises servers to the cloud. That transition is still going on. It's been more than a decade since that transition began, but that transition is still going on. And um, in general, for enterprises, it, you know, it's the difference between like a small boat and a large ship. Uh, enterprises don't want to rock the boat too much. Uh, a startup can be nimble. But when an enterprise actually um, makes decisions, you have to go through that bureaucratic process of uh, speaking everyone within the all the different decision makers within the organization, getting them to come to consensus, no pun intended, um, and then actually finally going ahead. But once an enterprise goes ahead, you basically have them have them as a client for a very long time. But essentially. Um, you know, today, so many companies have done POCs and wanted wanted to learn about this technology, but um, they haven't seen a strong enough uh, business case, like we talked about, uh, to go into full-scale implementation. And, you know, I mean, not to plug what we're trying to do, but essentially, um, we believe that the movement from kind of private to kind of hybrid public-private networks um, helps a lot in terms of building that uh, business case in terms of reducing expenses or increasing revenues. Um, in terms of full-scale implementation, rather than going after the largest corporations in the world, and you know, in North America, most of the business is run by large corporations, uh, which is very different to how business is done in Asia, where a lot of the business is controlled by uh, family offices and family-owned conglomerates. And what the big difference that is happening is that... Um, a lot of these families are now kind of transferring the businesses to the next generation. Um, and there is an intergenerational transfer of wealth and business happening. Um, a lot of the kids of these, you know, family owned conglomerates have actually gone to business schools in North America. And so they're very cognizant of uh, what's happening with um, tech companies. They're scared of what startups are going to do to their traditional businesses. So they want to future proof their business. Those are the folks that we try to work with uh, in terms of helping their businesses uh, adopt the latest technologies. So how do you, uh, you know, create kind of, um, you know, blockchain, uh, blockchain enabled applications or how do you enable, how do you plug in blockchain into their existing applications? And then also not just blockchain, but also connecting them to folks um, who are experts in who are domain experts in other industries, whether that is, you know, the usage of IoT devices for certain, you know, traditional businesses, the use of artificial intelligence to some extent. So how do you combine um, multiple technologies to help uh, some of these family offices and family-owned conglomerates to kind of future-proof the business? What's, uh, what's, like, what's their general sentiment towards cryptocurrency? Like, I hear a lot of blockchain talk. But uh, I'm solidly in the blockchain talk is for the birds. This is about cryptocurrency, and I will be there for a long time until proven different. <laughs> so what, uh, what exactly is the sentiment about cryptocurrency in India, Singapore? I mean, I think there's, there's curiosity. Uh, people want exposure uh, somehow. It's just that the problem is a lot of them have gotten burnt. Um, in, in different ways or lost their keys. And so they haven't gone through that kind of um, on-ramp. Singapore is different. I mean, Singapore is very unique in, in the whole of Asia in terms of being uh, one of the most, you know, whether it's from a regulatory perspective where you're literally talking to regulators on WhatsApp um, and them, you know, kind of giving you at some level blessings to um, operate in somewhat of a safe environment. So, you know, um, and, you know, recently I saw uh, Ms. Pierce kind of propose a safe harbor as far as uh, crypto companies are concerned in the U.S. I think something like that, though not formally, uh, something like that has existed in Singapore for a long time. And that's why I've seen, you know, so many kind of uh, entrepreneurs from even North America, um, you know, U.S., Canada and, you know, parts of Western Europe move to Singapore as well, just because it's so friendly from a regulatory perspective. And then you have, you know, even though getting a bank account and things like that for a crypto company can be a little bit complex, but in terms of ease of doing business and in terms of having access to like, you know, fiat on ramps, fiat off ramps for crypto, having different service providers, you know, lawyers who understand crypto, having auditors who can understand crypto, having fund administrators, you know, tax advisors, 
these different service providers that have um, you know kind of come into play. You know, Binance, for example, has been you know, super active in the Singapore ecosystem. They've Singapore is trying to come up with a new payment services act, which will apply to anyone uh, that handles fiat money. Period. You know, crypto, non-crypto, and I think Binance applied for that. You know, uh, license very recently. And so I think in terms of the crypto activity in Singapore, um, it is booming. Uh, as far as India is concerned, I think uh, in the Indian government's stance has been very similar to that of China, where they have this, you know, uh, crypto is bad, but blockchain is good. And so we're going to drive adoption of blockchain. Um, but I think over a period of time, um, the governments and enterprises are realizing that Although you may want to abstract away all the complexities at the application level, because a lot of enterprises are not uh, ready to custodize crypto assets. They're not ready to implement risk management procedures you know, in, through multi-sig. They're not, uh, they want to stay within the SWIFT ecosystem and interface with the bank. Um, so, but these folks have also started realizing that in the background to secure the network, you need miners and you need a distributed set of validators. Now that distributed set of validators could be uh, distributed to a varying degree, right? So um, hypothetically, you have very sensitive data for a government. The distributed validators would be distributed within the country because uh, it then it becomes a, a matter of national security and you don't want your data leaving the country. Even if you have things like, you know, zero knowledge proofs and, and you can provably show that you're not exposing the data to the validators, the governments have kind of inherent mistrust of not fully knowing where the data is landing up. So they just choose to keep the data, but it would still be distributed across the country. And then you have kind of private businesses that, you know, are MNCs and are willing to be open to having a globally distributed set of validators. Um, and these are third party validators, not the internal validators that have some uh, sort of incentivization, disincentivization, uh, some kind of game theory, some kind of crypto economics at play. So, you know, big part of the you know token. So essentially what's happening is, and, and again, you know, I'd love to hear kind of what your viewpoints are as well. But instead of like crypto becoming a medium of exchange, I think what it's happening is, is becoming a medium to um, secure blockchain networks while you actually do business um, in stable coins or uh, you do business in kind of, you know, traditional fiat while using kind of blockchain technology in the background while abstracting away all the complexities of being able, of having to hold a token, of having to deal with gas, of um, uh, moving out of the SWIFT ecosystem. But I, I'd love to hear what you guys think and what, what your kind of pulse of uh, how the industry's evolved is as well. Yeah, thinking about it, thinking about what you just said in terms of like through the lens of Cosmos, um, it makes a lot of sense. Like I feel as though a lot of the cryptocurrency aspect of Cosmos, at least how it stands now with the way validation is done is a way to um, put validators uh, at stake. In a lot of, in a lot of ways and then once you have the people who are validating and you have money behind what they're doing and the ability to take it away uh, and, and like a business case for them to operate uh properly then you can kind of conduct business based on the communication layer they provide which is i feel as feel as though what you just said am i right 100 percent. and you know see um, today we think of it as only Cosmos because only Cosmos is one of the kind of strongest and uh, one of the only live kind of delegated proof of stake networks. But if you look at all the kind of networks and including kind of, uh, you know, ETH 2.0, once that transition happens, um, we're going to be talking about it in a similar manner. It's just that Cosmos is the only live platform uh, so far. What, what is, could you, something about what you said earlier also, I, I could use a little more, uh, I guess clarity on, and that is like, what is this partially public, partially private blockchain implementation and network? Like, how does that how does that work in your eyes? Sure. So, and and you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why um, Cosmos is so interesting uh, for us as well. Um, so, for folks who are not familiar with Cosmos, uh, first of all, you know, very high level, taking a step back. 
today you have the Bitcoin blockchain, Ethereum, multiple other protocols. And these protocols don't speak to each other. So if you have an application built on Ethereum and uh, you have another application built on the Tezos platform, these two applications cannot do business with each other. Uh, so uh, Cosmos and now you know Polkadot, which should go live you know, in the next few months, um, are a layer of interoperability that sit on top of all these protocols, providing uh, essentially that um, you know layer of interoperability, and they call themselves the kind of you know quote unquote Internet of um, um, Internet of Blockchains. Mm-hmm. Now, the way Cosmos has been structured is that Cosmos has this kind of hub and spoke model. Cosmos believes in uh, what is called self-sovereign chains, which is like you have blockchains which are very, very application specific. So Ethereum takes the exact opposite approach where no matter whether you're CryptoKitties or whether you're an enterprise application, you're running on the same chain. Um, Cosmos's viewpoint on that spectrum is completely separate where they believe that you know every application would need its and again, not every app, not every chain needs to have its own token, but every application need, needs its own kind of uh, needs to be tweaked uh, for that particular use case. And to dig deeper, what happens is Cosmos has this kind of hub and spoke model. You have these major chains which are hubs, and so the Cosmos hub being the first major hub, uh, Iris hub being the major China hub, uh, Persistence being the enterprise hub, and then you have these spokes. Uh, the spokes are called zones um, in, in Cosmos language. And each zone can have small applications running on it. Um, and so in our case, so the Persistence Hub today has a commodity trading zone. Uh, Persistence Hub has a social impact bond uh, slash ESG uh, zone. Um, uh, Persistence has a uh, peer-to-peer solar trading uh, zone. So essentially... Um, What's um, sorry? I, I forget the initial question you asked. I forgot the uh, the public private like nature yeah, of correct, how this works. Correct, absolutely. So, so what happens um, in in the example of persistence? What we're doing is so a lot of these zones, you know, whether it's commodity trading, whether it's you know trading of solar credits, those are the clients that we're working with. Um, these zones are actually at some level uh, permissioned or private, but they're secured by a public set of validators. Um, these private zones don't actually have a tradable token. So how do you implement incentivization for the validators in the absence of a token? How do you implement governance for this zone in the absence of a tradable token? Um, What happens is uh, the actual governance or the actual incentivization slashing happens um, at the hub level. The hub itself is public and decentralized and permissionless. So essentially, we have this mechanism where you have private zones with no token, where you have distributed set of validators. But these validators, their governance and their incentivization happens at the hub level. Um, and so essentially, what this allows us to do is um, provide the different enterprises with the privacy of a private zone while having distributed consensus in the background. Um, and so this is kind of this hybrid kind of public-private structure which we believe is the way to create a more palatable, a more digestible way for enterprises to start using uh, public networks, decentralized networks, uh, and permissionless technology. Where's the uh, where's the incentive to be a spoke though? Because if the hub is you know is where the money's at, that's yeah. I, I want to be a hub. Correct. So the thing is, the mechanism that we've created is, so we have about 20 validators at the hub level. um, And we have uh, a subset of these 20 validators will be validating for different zones. Um, Why would you validate for the zone? Because of the economic activity in the zone. So today, uh, the first zone, the commodity trading zone has already processed $30 million worth of trades. Um, As that um, zone gets bootstrapped, it becomes very, very Uh, economically lucrative for the validators to start validating for individual zones. But essentially, you know, and this is one of the points that I try to keep making, you know, outside of the Bitcoin and Ethereum blockchain, there are not too many networks today which have enough financial economic activity for it to warrant validators or miners to mine outside of inflation or outside of network subsidy. 
but how do you get to once network subsidy goes down and and now we're seeing it with bitcoin where you know the your price is thankfully sustained and so it's still profitable for miners to mine but uh, for other networks what if you know over a long period of time your inflation your network subsidy is going away how do you incentivize miners or validators in that case you need to have financial activity in that particular chain in that particular zone for it to make economic sense for validators to keep mining or validating and so that's what we're trying to do if you um bring in 30 million dollars worth of commodity trades and you know fingers crossed we're set to do somewhere between 300 to 500 million dollars worth of commodity trades this year um then it, it, you know validators will be literally fighting to have that you know kind of spot to be able to uh validate or or, or mine also what we've done is and this is where and and i don't want to you know get too technical but um where cosmos's interblockchain communication protocol comes in um what happens is we've designed the incentive mechanisms in such a way that uh, a lot of the incentives for validating for different zones actually happens at the hub level so um even though you're validating for the zone and you're spending time energy money resources manpower to validate for a particular zone uh but the incentivization you would get the rewards at the hub level so you wouldn't get the rewards if you didn't validate for that particular zone i hope that answers your question i can try and yeah, yeah. it does okay cool okay yeah, i like this concept um especially having been a part of a lot of the earlier attempts to um think about enterprise level applications using things like private ethereum blockchains because that was always the i guess rudimentary level of how are we going to create this transition like, like if you take use the same analogy of intranets for enterprise slowly but surely moving into the internet once they felt comfortable dipping their toes in um doing that via ethereum hasn't worked out uh as well as they'd like it to plasma was supposed to be the mainstay of how these enterprise could do things at a certain level of scale and then uh, trustlessly dip their toes into a main network to communicate with each other and we haven't quite seen that yet what you just described is cosmos's version of the same thing um you have these hubs which where a lot of the i guess cryptocurrency type uh incentivization stuff is happening where the validate the validators are incentivized by uh the token across that that hub network which provides security to zones to do enterprise type applications without having to worry about any of that other stuff you can do commodities trading um the the credit swapping things like that and then they can have some type of either new or better level application that they that they're interested in with a lot more trustlessness uh that they would previously not have and it, i think it's it's, a, it's an interesting way to solve this problem that ethereum and other applications have yet to find a way to do yeah so i mean i think you know a couple of issues with ethereum is um So first is obviously you know like you mentioned scalability is you know one of the issues but by the way your understanding of what i described is very very spot on uh in terms of what what the exact mechanism is look um, at you cory look at yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> uh, um and uh i mean yeah i think as far as ethereum is concerned so essentially what consensus tried to do um is and and they did a phenomenal job in terms of just driving that narrative to enterprises right it makes a huge difference when and they did it in a very kind of non shilly kind of way where it was very um enterprise friendly it was positioned in a way that enterprises could digest it um and so a great uh, they did an amazing job in terms of uh doing that media push you know doing the pr the marketing uh, i think where they um fell short a little bit was and i'm not even talking about the kind of scalability limitations of ethereum or anything is more from an implementation perspective i think you know consensus itself um uh wasn't able to organize itself in a way where they could become super super effective and i think at some level that is one of the things that um you know we're trying to tackle in terms of giving uh enterprises something that they are used to uh you know in terms of how they deal with 
management consulting firms or how they deal with kind of different kind of service providers, having SLAs in place and things like that. Again, again, what we're, again, and you know, at some level, this pisses some people off because we're kind of moving away from the you know pure decentralization, permissionless kind of narrative ethos. Um, and but at some level, this is also how I believe you know having looked at, and I, I've been in that camp, man. I'm like ninety nine percent of my uh, personal net worth is in crypto. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. I'm a huge, huge believer, but um, but how do you make it, you know, enterprise friendly? Uh, because the the amount of new money coming into the in- industry will just be so massive from my perspective. Once these enterprises start getting comfortable, uh, that it's a from a risk reward perspective, it's a journey worth taking. Mm. So correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, to Char, but it sounds like the goal line. The t- you watch? You, do you watch football like American football? <laughs> Not really, man. But, uh, but I'm <laughs> yes, with- another one on my camp. <laughs> yeah. All right, soccer, man. I'll, do you watch soccer? Oh yes. yes. Let's hear this analogy. All right. So the goal here, like literally and figuratively, the goal is to get businesses to instead of pay enormous contracts out for people to secure their very sensitive information. Uh, they're then paying validators to assure that their sensitive information is distributed in a private and secure manner. And Absolutely. so we've got to show them that it's more cost effective to pay validators than pay someone like, I don't know, Oracle or like uh, fucking, I don't know, people that do that stuff. That's the Absolutely. end game. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Um, that's, the, that's the eventual goal. My belief is that on a long enough time scale, who the validators will be, they'll be enterprises themselves. Um, and whether that's the current validators or it is, uh, you know, entities like, so our, one of my big beliefs is that validators become like auditors, right? Because you said securing of networks. At the end of the day today, who secures business? It's the auditors. It's the auditors that prevent businesses from taking part in scams and fraudulent activities. Um, but essentially what we're doing is, but auditors have no economic skin in the game. They only have reputational skin in the game. If they become, uh, if they issue reports, positive reports for a company that is acting fraudulently, then they have potential, uh, you know, risk of losing their reputation and hence potential loss of business. That's the only um, skin in the game that they have. In the case of validators, what's happening is not only do they have reputational skin in the game they have economic skin in the game through delegations and crypto economic incentives and so um my belief is that on a long enough time scale entities like pwc kpmg all these audit firms the consulting firms like bain bcg mckinsey they themselves will become validators um they will find people who have the expertise to set up um the correct infrastructure and then maintain that infrastructure because there will be so much economic activity that these guys will be securing. And audit today happens at the end of the year. Why should it? Why should you wait for a year for a scam or a fraudulent activity to be exposed? What if you could expose it in real time? And that's what the grand vision is. I mean, but again, you have to take baby steps to get to that grand vision. But the grand vision is that these folks themselves um, start hosting validators in the future. Again, I mean, it's and it's it's totally debatable whether this is a positive outcome or a negative outcome. But this is what I believe will happen. I think hmm. that's I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up wrap up this interview. Um, it's a message that like I think people can kind of understand. It's it's in a reasonable way to think about the the baby steps we need to take to get to whatever that eventual goal is. How do people find out more about persistence? Uh, what you guys are doing? Get in touch, contribute, etc. Wait, 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 wait. Or do you got more? You got more. Tushar, in 10 words or less, can you describe blockchain? Oh, man. Uh, this is uh, such a difficult one. Um, I think blockchain is essentially a distributed database with certain crypto economic incentives tied to ensure there's no malicious activity. Okay. I, th- so I think that's over that's 10. That's more than 10 words. Yeah, that's, that's like 17. It was close. It was close. But uh, you get an E for effort. You get an A for effort. Thank you. E for... <laughs> um, 
it's uh, my my one of my uh, gym instructors had a really bad accent and he used to say uh, a for effort actually nail that's pretty rough um yeah man plug persistence yeah. man tell people how to find it how uh, and, and yeah. how to interact with you guys sure so we haven't been i think twitter is the best way to follow what we've been up to um twitter telegram i think telegram is so far only been a one way communication we haven't um uh engaged the community so far we've been engaging with folks you know within within the cosmos ecosystem on cosmos's telegram and their discord but as far as you know persistences uh, developments go uh, i think the best way is twitter best way is join our telegram announcement channel so far and follow our medium blog posts in terms we write a lot in terms of what we believe the future is and and how it's going to evolve and and follow me personally as well on twitter i'm i'm probably you know uh, i'm super super active on twitter so at the rate to shar t t for thailand u s h a r 307 all right well that's all i got core if you don't have anything no nah, thanks for coming on thank you to shar thank you so much guys for hosting <laughs>